Angie's List is now Angie, A-N-G-I, and caring for your home just got easier. Whether you need help with routine maintenance or a dream remodel, Angie makes it easy to see reviews, compare quotes, and connect with top local pros who can get the job done right. Plus, you could see upfront pricing and instantly book hundreds of projects. No phone tag, just the work you need done at a time that works for you. Angie's got your to-do list covered from start to finish. Book your next home project today at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. Matt Getz was one of President Donald J. Trump's most vocal allies during his term, publicly pledging loyalty and even signing a letter nominating the president for the Nobel Peace Prize. But Getz, it turns out, wanted something in return, some quid pro quo for his unceasing loyalty. In the waning days of the Trump administration, as he propagated his big lie, aided and abetted by Matt Getz, the Florida congressman privately asked the White House for a blanket preemptive pardon for himself and unidentified congressional allies for any crimes they may have committed. We begin with the ongoing scandal engulfing Republican Congressman Matt Gates. The longtime and loyal MAGA figure is in free fall. He faces these sex allegations being investigated by the DOJ. He's been largely abandoned by Donald Trump in public, and we're now learning Donald Trump's White House reportedly rebuffed what was a very incriminating request from Gates in private. The New York Times reporting he asked for a preemptive pardon in those final turbulent weeks of Trump's presidency. Gates now faces allegations that range from paying for sex to backing sex trafficking to alleged sex with an underage girl. And why, pray tell, would Matt Getz, the golden boy of Florida conservatism, need such a favor from the most powerful man in the world? That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older... They stay the same age. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Around that time, Matt Getz was also publicly calling for broad pardons from Mr. Trump to thwart what he termed the bloodlust of their political opponents. But Justice Department investigators had begun questioning Mr. Getz's associates about his conduct, including whether he had a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl that violated sex trafficking laws in an inquiry that grew out of a case of an indicted associate in Florida. Matt Gates cannot offer Joel Greenberg a pardon, nor can he have any real hope that Joel Greenberg will keep his mouth shut for his bromance uh, uh, Matt Gates. So if there is something that Joel Greenberg knows that the federal prosecutors would like to know and are willing to deal with him, uh, Matt Gates could be in significant legal jeopardy. I know that people sometimes act like statutory rape isn't a real crime, but it is paying for women to travel across yeah. state lines for sorry, for girls to travel across state lines to have sex with you is in fact a crime. And if he did that and Joel Greenberg knows he did that, Matt could be in a lot of trouble. And there it is. Getz got caught with his pants down, literally, and needed the Donald to bail him out. The price, it seems, was Getz's willingness to undermine the very fabric of democracy in order to sweep under the rug his predilection for young girls. You've seen us catch online predators. Oh, please, God. 
Men scouring the internet for sex with young teens. I swear on my daughter that I was just planning on coming over here to talk. This time, our hidden cameras are in Florida. He's in the laundry room naked. That Trump administration officials would view the request as a non-starter shows you just how radioactive Getz had become in those winter months leading up to the January insurrection. Trump was pardoning literally anyone and everyone. We already know that William Barr wanted to know everything about the case as well as Getz's schedule so they would never be near one another or in proximity of a camera. Part of the reason Attorney General Barr was briefed on it a lot is because he was very concerned for himself. Uh, he, didn't want, he didn't want to accidentally end up at an event where Congressman Gates might be while this investigation in Congressman Gates was ongoing. Regardless of outcome, Getz's desperate appeal to the Trump administration for a pardon illustrates how the third-term congressman sought to maximize the presidential relationship that he had spent years building. President Trump sometimes raises his voice and a ruckus. He knows that's what it takes to raise an army of patriots who love America and will protect her. Few Republicans in Congress were more closely associated with Donald Trump during his term than Matt Getz. Initially a Jeb Bush supporter in the 2016 primaries, Getz quickly hitched his fortunes to Trump and found stardom in the magnified GOP. In this universe, there was only one hard and fast rule. Thou shalt always be loyal to Donald Trump. Rule number two, thou shalt always be loyal to Donald Trump. My fellow patriots, don't be shy and don't be sorry. Join me as we proudly represent the pro-Trump America first wing of the conservative movement. Those who carried water for the president from crisis to crisis were graded and rewarded based on how vociferously they defended the former president on conservative news or parroted his talking points for the day. While Getz may have been performing for an audience of one, the greater Trump ecosystem that sustained his millions of followers were watching as well. And they liked what they saw. Bravo, Marjorie Taylor Greene. That was so good, I almost had to smoke a cigarette afterwards. She was policy-focused. She was graceful. In his memoir published last fall, Firebrand, dispatches from the front lines of the MAGA revolution, Getz recalled his first one-on-one -on -one phone call with the president in late 2017. Mr. Trump had seen Mr. Getz on Fox News attacking Robert S. Mueller III, the special counsel, and thought he had had an ally. I need warriors, you know what I mean, the president told him. If behind those doors they intend to overturn the results of an American presidential election, we want to know what's going on. And it's only reasonable that we would have questions. The president was looking for his guys and Getz came seemingly made to order. With his blow-dried modern televangelist quaff and blinding white teeth, Getz cut a cheesy sartorial path. But he also had the kind of Joe frat boy handsome swagger that Trump identified with being a young conservative alpha male. Feds are looking into the congressman's visit to the Bahamas with women, and specifically whether those women were paid to travel for sex, which would violate federal laws. The sources say investigators are also looking into whether Gates and one of his associates used the Internet to search for women they could pay for sex. Mr. Getz knew precisely the role he was supposed to play. Both he and Trump enjoy the politics of division. Getz especially would make the rounds on Fox News and Newsmax to comment on the outrage of the day and bemoan his conservative victimhood. 
Then there was Getz's propensity to boast about his sexual exploits, coupled with his willingness to go to the mattress for the president and do battle with Democrats. Sources tell us that as a member of the Florida House of Representatives, female colleagues referred to him as, quote, creepy Gates because he made them feel so uncomfortable. Once in Congress, sources say Gates allegedly boasted of his sexual encounters with women and would allegedly try to show colleagues photos and videos of naked women he'd claimed he'd slept with. One source saying he tried to show him video of a naked woman with a hula hoop. My dear Anna, this is your favorite tax collector. I'm up in Panhandle with your favorite U.S. Congressman, Mr. Gates. Hi, Anna. And uh, we were just chatting about you and talking about your lovely qualities and we think you're the future of the Democratic Party in Florida. The president has called me when I was in my car, asleep in the middle of the night on my Longworth office cot, on the throne, on airplanes, in nightclubs, and even in the throes of passion. Yes, I answered, gets boasted in his book. How much for the little girl? The women. How much for the women? What? You're a woman. I, I, I want to buy your women, the little girl. Your Gets fully embraced his roles as Trump's bulldog, especially after the former president lost the election, trying to discredit the result and overturn it in Congress. He personally attacked Liz Cheney, a leading Republican critic of Trump's incitement of the Capitol rioters, showing up in Wyoming with Don Jr. to put her on blast in front of the Wyoming Capitol. You can send a representative who actually represents you, and you can send Liz Cheney home. Back home to Washington, D.C. By this time, though, the Justice Department's investigation of Getz was in full swing. And so was Getz's full court press for a presidential pardon. Here is on Fox News practically begging. President Trump should pardon Michael Flynn. He should pardon the Thanksgiving turkey. He should pardon everyone from himself to his administration officials to Joe Exotic if he has to. I think that the president ought to wield that pardon power effectively and robustly. In hindsight... It now seems quite obvious what Getz was trying to do. But no amount of ass-kissing or constitution-burning was going to save him. Getz made the fundamental error that so many before him have made and that I have warned about. He thought that Trump actually gave a shit about him. Nuh-uh. Donald Trump cares only about himself. That you did all that stuff for him, sold your fucking soul, and sold out your country. Sorry, buddy. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. And now for the main event. As co-conspirators go, Matt Getz is a clown, a lightweight playing politics in his daddy's suit. He had no real vision or agenda beyond chasing skirts and shouting on Fox News. His time in the ring was always going to be short-lived. While there is no honor amongst thieves, especially when it comes to Donald Trump, you at least hope when they close the books, they have at least a shred of self-respect and will somehow find it within themselves to change. I suspect that Matt Getz possesses none of that. But today, I'm proud to welcome onto Maya Culpa the original White House operator, John Dean. For those of you who lived through Watergate, his name is synonymous with the political intrigue of the 1970s. 
Dean served as White House counsel for the United States President Richard Nixon from July 1970 until April of 1973. In this position, he became deeply involved in events leading up to the Watergate burglaries and the subsequent scandal and cover-up. Referred to as the master manipulator of the cover-up by the FBI, Dean's testimony before the House was watched by some 80 million Americans. Granted immunity, he laid out in stunning detail and intricacy how the president not only knew about, but orchestrated the break-in and burglary of the Democratic National Committee. He ultimately was sentenced to one year in federal prison, but emerged from the experience to changed and soulful individual. Dean renounced his former politics and lust for power and started a second life as an author and a speaker. He penned five books about Watergate and ten in total, including his most recent one, Authoritarian Nightmare, Trump and His Followers. At age 83, Dean is now the last man standing from that era, especially with the passing of G. Gordon Liddy last week. He is the last connection between this nation's authoritarian past and present. So let's listen now to that conversation. On March 10th, upon news that I had appeared before the Manhattan DA's investigators for the eighth time, you tweeted, from personal experience as a key witness, I assure you that you do not visit a prosecutor's office eight times if they are not planning to indict those about whom you have knowledge. Now, it's only a matter of how many days until the DA, until um, Cy Vance indicts Donald and company. What specifically from your personal experience leads you to believe that indictments are actually forthcoming? Well, I just assumed based on uh, my own experience that you just don't keep going back to the prosecutor's office if they're not interested in your potential testimony or they've got a very serious case and they're trying to sort out what they have and get you to help them. Now, I did far more than eight visits. I probably did 80 visits. Uh, in fact, during my, I was in the witness protection program, unlike you. Uh, and when it came time to get ready for trial, they said, we want to have you in confinement. Well, confinement was a safe house out in Maryland uh, at uh, Fort Hullabird. And every day they'd pick me up in the morning, take me into the prosecutor's office. I'd be in the office until probably five or six o'clock, uh, drive home, stop for dinner on the way, uh, and then return to the safe house and repeat the same thing over and over and over. Uh, so they had, this was before they had laptops uh, and accessed information. So during the trial, they literally kept me in a back room after I testified for two weeks on the stand. Uh, Jim Neal, the lead trial prosecutor, uh, found me a endless resource, particularly during his cross-examination. So they would tap me uh, for information that would help them as they proceeded with the trial even. So I can't say that your experience is identical to mine, uh, I, yours may get to where mine was uh, as you proceed, but it just it just struck me. I know the witnesses who went in once or twice, uh, and th those were cases that people were not pursuing. Uh, those who went in uh, seven or eight or nine times were typically on cases that went forward. So that was where I drew that conclusion. And I used, I actually thought I'd put, well, it's a matter of months. Well, 
Months are also made up of days, so I just made it more interesting by saying days. Actually, a, 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 Michael, a, a remarkable number of people looked at that tweet. Over 2 million people uh, saw that tweet. Yeah. Well, listen, I can understand that because so many people are so interested in terms of, I'm every single day while I'm sitting here on home confinement, I receive no less than 15 phone calls from various different reporters, um, not just here in this country, but foreign reporters asking me, what is the DA talking to you about? I'm sorry, I can't answer that question. Well, then can you tell us, you know, what are the topics? Well, I'm sorry, I can't really answer that question either. You, you, you and I know you actually can answer those questions. You've chosen to be a good guy and not ask, answer them. That's true, because I'm under no cooperation agreement. Right. Here's something that people don't know. I was never under a cooperation agreement, not with the SDNY, not with Mueller, not with anybody. And something that many of the Trump surrogates like to say or the Trump supporters like to say is that I'm a rat, that I did. I provided the information because I was trying to get a benefit from my testimony for a reduction of sentence. That's not true. Now, if I would have gotten it, I would have taken it. But I was under no 5K1 agreement. I was under nothing that would have provided me with a benefit. My whole goal was to tell the truth because I was actually under subpoena by Congress in order to do so. That's the, that's the truth, but people don't want to hear it because, like everything else, the story's not as good if you don't have, you know, the, if you don't have the antagonist versus the protagonist, right? It's, they have to make it this David versus Goliath story. And in my specific case, I hope that it turns out the way that the Bible did where, you know, David slayed the beast because I could promise all my listeners, and you know this from firsthand experience, Going up against truth to power is a bitch. I mean, especially when you have two kind of individuals that are really not that dissimilar from one another, a Donald Trump as well as a Richard Nixon. Um, I mean, Trump is just a horrific human being that will stoop down to the levels of the devil in order to disparage you and denigrate you and demean you and, you know, and to basically destroy you. You know, that's that's just who Donald Trump is. Let's come back to uh, Trump versus Nixon. But first, I want to say, if you got a deal, you got a very bad deal uh, with the government. Uh, yeah. It doesn't strike doesn't strike me that you had uh, very much uh, help from your lawyer or very much help from the government. Uh, and actually, I was not in a dissimilar situation when I uh, decided to break rank and, and testify. I just. I, I was at war with my former colleagues and uh, the president. They were trying their best to destroy me, and I wasn't inclined to let them do it. And I think you were in a very similar situation. So people don't understand. You're right. They, uh, when I actually, uh, I pled guilty when I didn't have to, which made life a lot easier for the prosecutors. And uh, when Judge Sirica sentenced me, he initially gave me one to four years, which was pretty striking for a cooperating witness. But it, it was, it, we figured out very quickly what the judge was very savvy. I went in just before the trial to, to, uh, to serve my time, 
And that made me a better witness. And as soon as I completed, he knew I was in the witness protection program. As soon as I finished, uh, I was released, uh, which uh, ended the whole thing. But I, I actually had a unique situation, Michael, in that because I testified under two cases of immunity, once before the prosecutors, where they gave me equitable immunity, which is just, we're not going to prosecute you if you tell us what happened. I was very cautious with them because I didn't feel they could take the case the full distance. And the Senate Watergate Committee was in existence. So I was very reluctant to talk to them for fear they would screw up the case. And initially, my agreement was they wouldn't talk to Main Justice, because I knew if it went back to Main Justice, it would go back to the White House. That channel had been open throughout Watergate. And so I, and indeed, we now know from the tapes today, that's exactly what happened. Nixon actually called the head of the criminal division over to the White House and pumped him and then fed Haldeman and Ehrlichman, uh, who I was talking about exactly what I was saying. Anyway, to make uh, my situation was because the Senate immunized me and I testified for a week before the Senate, uh, I, my lawyer said, John, you're in a situation where the government can't have it both ways. They can't have you testify and they can't turn around and prosecute you. And that's the way he originally set it up. I, I had actually gone to him to talk about pleading. He said, I don't do pleas. Uh, you can have to find somebody else to do that. But I'll look at your case. Let's take it along and see how it works out. And by the time we got to the uh, making the call on what I was going to do, uh, it, the clearest and smartest thing to do was to plead because I wasn't trying to beat the rap. I was willing to take responsibility, as you have been, for what you made, the mistakes you made, and get on with life. So uh, life has always been much easier not trying to beat the rap. Uh, and so I think you'll, in the end, be find that's the, the best route you could have taken. Well, yes, except in my specific case, what the prosecutors did is they piled on additional charges because they didn't want it to appear to be solely political. I am responsible for the hush money payments. I'm 100% responsible for it. However, I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. I mean, that's just a fact that for some reason, again, his supporters don't want to hear or they don't want to acknowledge. But the, inf the, the stuff about tax evasion or misrepresentation to a bank, that's all lies. And the worst part for me, when you, when you just said uh, prior to this that, you know, you, you didn't have whether it was good counsel or that the government was really trying to stick it to you. You have to remember, they came 50, 60 federal agents between three different locations. My home, the hotel I was staying at because of the flood that took place in my apartment and my law office. They took everything, right? Mm. 14 million documents for four and a half months. My lawyer and I tried to reach them to find out, what are you guys looking for? What are you doing? I'm actually a very simple guy to understand. You know, what are we, what are we talking about here? We're not ready to talk yet. We're not ready to talk yet. Okay. Ultimately, on a Friday night at 530, it's like August 17th. I'm with my wife and buddy of mine who had just undergone Achilles surgery, Achilles heel surgery, uh, because he tore it while playing tennis. I get a phone call from the lawyer who had just met with Robert Kazami. After four and a half months of asking to meet, tells me that you have till Monday to come in and to plead guilty 
I didn't even know what the charges were. Or we're filing an 80-page indictment against you, going to drag you out of your apartment. Oh, by the way, we're going to drag your wife out of the apartment too, and we're going to indict her as a co-conspirator to the hush money payments because we had, um, I, I had put the money into her bank account because my bank accounts, believe it or not, were frozen because of identity theft. Right. That's that's just how crazy this thing um, you know, was and how fast it happened. And I wasn't going to take a chance. Not when it came. Not when it comes to my wife. You know, I knew that these sick individuals needed this for their own, you know, for their own portfolio so that they could continue to say things like we have a 98 percent conviction rate, which is why that these bastards were all high fiving each other during the sentencing and during the plea. It was really very wrong what they did. Michael, the the Southern District of New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office for Manhattan, has always had a strange independence. I first learned of it during the Pentagon Papers when the U.S. Attorney called me to say, listen, the Department of Justice has sent somebody up here to work with us on the Pentagon Papers. We don't like him, a guy by the name of Bob Mardian, who was the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Internal Security Division. And we're not going to do anything he says. We just wanted the White House to know that. I'm calling you as White House counsel. During Watergate, they damn near screwed it up because they wanted to get part of the action. And they decided after my testimony, they'd like to they'd like to look at me. So they actually hiked me up to a grand jury in a totally unrelated case about which I knew nothing, threatened to indict me in the case, although I had no exposure. Uh, and played all kinds of games with me. They actually had me testify in a case which I knew very little about, weakened me as a witness for that reason, and absolutely infuriated the Watergate Special Prosecution Force for what they were doing, where several members of that force were from the Southern District and talked to them and said, what in the hell are you guys doing? Well, you know, they have their own agenda in the Southern District and play their own games. And sometimes they're not as savvy as they want to pretend they are. Yeah, but sadly enough, they put many people like myself behind bars. They paint you to be the worst human being. They destroy your reputation, which is something that many reporters are talking about when they say that I may be called uh, for Cy Vance's investigation uh, into Donald Trump. Um, As far as I'm concerned, I don't really give a shit. They could say about me whatever they want. I have very thick skin. I've gotten up. I've told the truth. I told the truth to the Mueller investigation. I've told the truth to the Congress, other than the time that I lied at Donald Trump's request, which was, right, how many times that I spoke to him about the failed real estate project in Moscow? Three is what I said when the actual number was 10. Really? I ended up going to prison in no part because Donald Trump got his pecker pulled by a porn star and I and somebody needed to be the responsible party. Why it's not the guy that had the affair on his wife? Why it's not the guy that directed me to make the payments between him and Weisselberg? I'll never know. But, you know, moving it just a little bit further, John, in recent days, the GOP leadership has ramped up its attacks on corporations that have dared to criticize Georgia's new repressive voting legislation. Now, in response to Mitch McConnell, who I despise, and others who have sought to silence them, you wrote something, and I quote, this is the sound of authoritarian dogs barking. In fact, they are toothless, all sound and fury with no bite. Discuss this with me, if you would. Okay, can I 
Just tidy up for your listeners the Trump versus Nixon, which I think they'd really uh, dislike us if we didn't clean that up and go back to that. Just let John, me you say- could do, John, you could do whatever you want. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. We've got an amazing sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Things can get pretty intense discussing American politics. So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out Tuesday's episode with legendary investor Ray Dalio who returns to Jordan's show to discuss his new book, The Changing World Order. I also found time to catch up on some old episodes and listen to the December 20, 2020 interview with Blackstone CEO Stephen Schwarzman, a fascinating look into one of the world's most powerful men. There's an episode for everyone, though, no matter what you're into. The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on or off the pill can change elements of our personalities. The podcast covers a lot, but one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy the show, and we think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I, okay. I, 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 I accede to you. Well, I don't... I don't want your listeners angry at me for not for dodging that question. So before we get to that last tweet you you referred to, let me just tell you that there are some real differences and similarities between Nixon and Trump. Uh, the similarities are they are both authoritarians, clearly authoritarian personalities, which I've spent time studying. I've I've did a collaboration with. One of the foremost experts on a book called Authoritarian Nightmare, uh, Trump and His Followers, because I thought people ought to understand who these people are, not only who Trump and someone like Nixon, uh, their dispositions, but most, more importantly, those who are attracted to these kind of personalities. Anyway, the big difference between Trump and Nixon to me is that Nixon actually had deep in him a respect for institutions. He understood them. He was well-read. He was trained in the law, of course. And he also, what's different from Trump, is Nixon experienced shame. He really did not feel comfortable, uh, and he was not thick-skinned, so he was offended by attacks against him, and these tended to influence his behavior. When you have somebody like Trump, who has absolutely no shame, Uh, you know, there are no boundaries. There's no way anything you or I say, anything the media says, uh, is going to affect his behavior. He's going to do what the hell he wants because whatever he thinks is in his best interest is his criteria, not what he thinks may be uh, good for uh, the rule of law or his perception in the world. So that's the fundamental difference. Nixon never frightened me during Watergate. I'm telling you, from the day Trump was elected until the day he left, 
I had a knot in my stomach, Michael. I didn't. I thought he was dangerous. He's extremely incompetent. Has no idea what the government can and does, and is and how it works, uh, what it's supposed to do, and how it's supposed to do it. So I found him a terrifying figure as president. And God forbid he ever get back because he actually thinks he understands it now. So it could only get worse if he get gets back in power. And 74, 75 million people uh, bit the uh, bait and took the con, which is even more frightening. All right, what was I saying about Mitch McConnell and and his uh, bark having no bite? Well, at this point, Mitch is all bluff. He has really no power. Will he have it again? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, so his... Uh, his chewing at corporations to tell them they shouldn't involve in uh, get involved in politics is just absurd. Since uh, he wants them involved, he wants their money, uh, and he has one who has touted his own corporate uh, endorsements in every campaign he's ever run. So we know they're important to him. He, we know that he knows that they can influence public opinion. Uh, he's seen it over his career, and I think it's vital that corporations, and they know that he has really no bite at this point. So it's uh, it's him playing the authoritarian tune of let's bark at these people and back them off uh, when hopefully they won't do that. Yeah, let's hope because, I, like I said, I think Mitch McConnell is a disgrace to politics. I actually I find him to be a disgrace to humanity. But, you know, I do want to ask you something else. In response to news of G. Gordon Liddy's death, you retweeted the following from Keith Olbermann, and you quoted, Were Saturday Night Live still the insurrectionist force that it was in 1976? It would report Liddy had died from complications from unexplained third-degree palm burns suffered half a century ago. Now, both of us share the ignominious honor of having been lampooned on Saturday Night Live. You know, the great Ben Stiller played me opposite Alec Baldwin's uh, fantastic uh, depiction of Donald Trump. I'm curious if you ever had a chance to meet the great Buck Henry who played you opposite Dan Aykroyd's paranoid Richard Nixon. Well, let me tell you, the greatest mistake I made during Watergate and post-Watergate was refusing to go on Saturday Night Live. I realize today I should have done it. The reason I didn't do it is my publisher and my editor uh, did not want me to do it. I hadn't, I was just, the invitation came in before I'd published Blind Ambition and I was, I was very much for it. Uh, they just sort of said, you just can't do that. Uh, we just don't go there. And I, I thought it was, a, uh, in retrospect, it was a terrible mistake. What I was referring to in, in, in uh, uh, that tweet that, uh, in, and retweeting Oberman's tweet, a story that some people know, some people don't know, about Liddy's purported macho behavior where he claimed after the fact that to convince the men who were working for him that he could never be forced to tell anything about them if he decided not to, is he held his hand over a candle uh, until the, the flesh burned and that he would ignore the pain and he could do that and therefore they could be assured. Well, years later, after that myth had been spread, Howard Hunt, 
who was looking for lecture dates came my lecture agent said would I share some dates with Howard I said I'd be happy to so I actually got to know him I didn't know him when he worked at the Nixon White House I'd met him once in Chuck Colson's office never had talked to him and he was actually kind of a charming fellow and as we we're flying around the country I was asking him questions and I said what is this bit about Liddy and the hand over the candle and he said he said that is one of the great uh, myths that Liddy has created, that it was somehow a macho m move. Actually, what happened is we were in a restaurant in Los Angeles. An attorney friend of mine had fixed us up with a couple girls. Liddy thought this was how he would seduce a girl, is by holding his hand over a candle to show him how tough he was, that he would never reveal that they'd had any kind of relationship. And so he told the girl uh, that uh, I'll hold my hand until you tell me to remove it just to show you that I'll never give up our whatever we do. It'll just be private between us. And and she thought it was a trick. And if his flesh is is smoking and, and burning. And finally, she realizes <laughs> it's not a trick. And she damn near faints. <laughs> So Liddy, Liddy did not uh, did not uh, win her affection with this move, uh, but rather damn near destroyed his hand in this silly act that that, uh, tr that Hunt assured me uh, had no macho connections with it at all. Yeah, well, another one of those famous uh, sort of stories, of course, is Donald Trump having bone spurs in his feet, which, of course, prevented him from fighting in Vietnam. You know, we know that that's uh, bullshit as well. But, you know, um, John, I'd like to ask you, talk to me for a moment about Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. In response to the recent New York Times piece about his spreading of misinformation, you wrote the following. This man is beyond Trumpian incompetence. He is unqualified to serve in the U.S. Senate. Hard to know if he is a Russian asset, an unintelligible fool, or suffering a mental illness. Hope he runs again so Democrats can pick up his seat and give him a rest. What did you mean by that? Not that it's too hard to figure out. Yeah, pretty, pretty much what I said, Michael, <laughs> that I, I think he is playing way out of his league. Uh, the you know, how he can take the positions he's taking as a member of the Senate and being anywhere close to honoring his oath of office just don't just don't square. Uh, I think he's an embarrassment. Uh, I know too many people in Wisconsin. They say the state is not as crazy as he makes it seem with his being in the Senate. And today they don't think he can survive. There's a real question of whether he's going to run again. Uh, so hopefully he will, because that way Republicans can lose that seat. And, and, and it was long held as a Democratic seat. So uh, I meant just what I said is the short answer to that question. Yeah, what's said is that there's just so many Ron Johnsons, right, on the Republican side. Take a look at that other idiot. What's his name? Kennedy. And sometimes they, they have him on CNN. Now, what to me, you really have to be a stupid ass to go on CNN when you know that they're going to ask you questions that are diametrically opposed to what it is that you're saying, thinking for a second that you're going to convince anybody that your position is right, especially when the fact that all you're doing is you're touting and you're promoting the Trump conspiracy nonsense over and over and over again. And then he looks straight into the camera as if he's going to convince anybody other than the fact that 
You're a fool for going on the station. I mean, I'm glad that he does, and I'm certain that CNN is glad that he does because it makes for great ratings. But he looks like such a dumbass, right? The same as Ron Johnson. The same as Mitch McConnell when he gets up there. You know what I love the most, John? I love when MSNBC or CNN or NBC or any of these stations, they go and they do a a clip on what Mitch McConnell said five years ago, 10 years ago, and then they go ahead and they show what he's saying today. And the only thing that's changed is whether it's a Republican or a Democrat in the, right, in the Oval Office. And it's just so disingenuous. And they have to realize that they're flip-flopping on their positions, which just makes them look stupid. And it certainly hurts this country. It does. And it, it makes it look how, how thin their politics really are. Their convictions are, are nil. Uh, they really are just playing to whatever they think they can accomplish with this new voter suppression movement. The revival of Jim Crow is got to be offensive to anybody who has any knowledge. But, of course, a lot of that base has very little knowledge, very little sense of history. On John Kennedy, the senator uh, who you mentioned, uh, he's questioned me once when I was before testified before the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee on the nomination, the Kavanaugh nomination, and uh, I he when he, the television camera's on, his southern draw gets really deep and twangy, and I had a conversation with somebody about it, and they said, "Well, you know that whole convert, that whole southern draw is phony, didn't you?" I said, "No, I didn't." They said, "Well, sometimes you talk to him, and you don't, it's not there at all, and it is manufactured just for his constituents." Uh, who like that uh, uh, that whole phoniness that he puts on about being this deep Southern boy, where in normal conversations he'll slip and occasionally you won't even hear it at all. <laughs> I mean, if that's not just the saddest excuse for a human being, right? And they're all playing to Donald Trump simply because it's all about their reelection. It's all about trying to get the donors like what Trump did, which I, I find hysterical. Now that you see what's going on there, the reason that he raised so much money is because what Trump with his uh, campaign individuals like the Brad Parscales or the Don Juniors or the Jared Kushners, what they did is there was a small little box that you had to click in order to make the donation once. So now I think they have to return something like a hundred and something million dollars to 560,000 donors. If that isn't enough to wake people up, to what I said when I stood before the entire world, before the House Oversight Committee and the honorable late Elijah Cummings, a really sweet man. And I turned around and I said, Donald Trump is a fraud and Donald Trump is a con man. If you don't realize that embedding a small dot that you have to click on to make it a one-time, a one-time donation, right? That's got to show you the type of individual. He doesn't give a shit about anyone or anything. It's his It's the way he wants to run things, and the way he wants to run things is always a con. There's always an ulterior motive behind him. You know, what's most striking to me, Michael, when he first surfaced as a candidate in 2015, uh, as a serious candidate, I didn't really believe he could win. I didn't think there were as many fools out there as we now know there are. Uh, I didn't think, you know, he was strikingly 
uh, authoritarian. I don't think he knew when he started exactly what his campaign was going to be, what kind of voter he might or might not uh, appeal to. We know he was a Democrat at one point, uh, palling around with Bill and Hillary, and probably would have gone left if he thought that could have uh, attracted people. But I think he found his own natural niche and and was most comfortable being the person we see out there, uh, the con man, uh, the incompetent. He realizes that he really didn't need to know anything about government. What's surprising, he didn't hire any people who did. Uh, so you were actually fortunate, Michael, to not go off with him to Washington because uh, it would have totally ruined your career had you been part of that. This is a team that didn't even know where the light switches were in the White House when they arrived. So they knew nothing about how to run the government. And I, I, you know, I wonder at the end if he didn't have a few people who were there who might have been saying no to him because they were worried about getting sent to jail for their behavior. He was so conspicuous in his, his illegal behavior. Uh, but I don't know that. No one has stepped forward. Uh, I, you know, that when there was open season on pardons, for example, when they were literally marketing them, uh, somebody had to put a kibosh. We now know that Matt Gates was trying to get a blanket pardon before his, any of this current investigative uh, examination had surfaced. So, uh, you know, who knows what, what we still don't have the full story about the Trump presidency. Uh, I would knew from the beginning it would be a sieve because nobody respects this man really deep down inside. Uh, they fear him, but they don't respect him. Yeah. And I just want to let you know that it was not that I wasn't offered a job in D.C. I didn't want to go. Uh, I you didn't, were smart. I, I had my own ideas. I was going to end up becoming a consultant. I wanted to be, as I was offered the position, personal attorney to the president. I was extremely thankful that I was able to get that role, which is the role that I wanted. Unfortunately, it was a role that ended up causing me my freedom and um, all my money. But that's besides the point. I, I want to just keep moving forward here. On April 4th, in response to a tweet from The Atlantic... Um, writer and the USA Today columnist Tom Nichols writing that the wonderfully done anti-Nazi film Jojo Rabbit is a really good movie. Then you tweeted, too sophisticated for contemporary Republican stalwarts, but a wonderful film for everyone else. Now, obviously, you were being sarcastic, but unpack for me what you were getting at here in regards to MAGA stalwarts and certain corners of the GOP. Well, I, I did a book, as I mentioned, called Authoritarian Nightmare. We did a lot of polling uh, that uh, confirmed the science that was being relied upon in that, in that book. Uh, social scientists have actually been studying the kinds of personalities that are attracted to a Donald Trump for a long time. This started in the aftermath of World War II when the German people and the, and the Italian people have been attracted to dictators for all practical purposes and given them the power that uh, Hitler and Mussolini would get. So who are these people? Well, one of the things that uh, emerges from study and then, then from our polling is they're not very bright people. <laughs> and so uh, Jojo Rabbit is a very sophisticated movie. It, the, the, the leads are children. And so it's, you, you need a little bit of understanding of the world to really appreciate the movie. 
And I just was being very honest while sarcastic uh, that I don't think that the contemporary Trump supporter would get that movie at all. And I'm sure that if they went in, they'd walk out. Whereas it's a wonderful film for those who have a little sense of history and a little understanding of how uh, the world works, which is, as I say, not what you find in the typical Trump voter. Well, let me ask you this then, because you said in past interviews that you worked for this country's last authoritarian president, but that Trump is cut from a different cloth than Nixon. Now, much of this you discuss in your most recent book, Authoritarian Nightmare, and it's something that we touched on briefly at the beginning of this podcast. But if you can, unpack for my listeners just how different that cloth proved to be and what the ultimate legacy Trump left for the United States and our political system. Well, Trump is a he, he is a poster boy for the authoritarian personality, which Nixon was not. Uh, Nixon, as I said earlier, uh, had a deep belief in the rule of law. There's just no question. One of the reasons he decided not to stay and fight uh, for an impeach against an impeachment drive uh, was that he uh, his assessment was that he actually had didn't have all the facts. One of the untold stories is he had more information than he really knew he had. Probably could have put on a decent defense. Uh, but he didn't know that. So rather than put the country through anything more, uh, he decided to leave and, and try to get it behind us all. Uh, Trump is exactly the opposite. He he isn't sophisticated enough to know whether he had a defense or not, but he just kind of goes and uh, blunderbusts forward and assumes that he can prevail because he always has. He's always had somebody else there to help him and protect him. Uh, from his father to uh, some good attorneys he got. Uh, to me. In, in, to me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, who, who have protected him. He, he's needed uh, He's needed people who will get him out of the mess he gets, gets himself into. You know, to this day, I gather, he's still telling uh, his wife, uh, Melania, that he didn't have an affair with Stormy uh, and, and that uh, this is all just something that's made up. So you paid off somebody he actually didn't have an affair with, notwithstanding her testimony to the contrary, her book to the contrary. I actually looked at her book when I was writing Authoritarian Nightmare to see what that tryst was all about. And it was pretty unspectacular when you read it in her book. I guess you had her on as a guest recently. Uh, and she said all he did is talk about himself, <laughs> which wasn't exactly uh, uh, overwhelming her as far as uh, his uh, skills as a Lothario. <laughs> well, let's just say he was trying to give her a mental orgasm. Um, but I do <laughs> want to say to you, rest, you could also rest assured that Melania does not believe anything that comes out of Donald's mouth. I mean, let me be very clear about that. There are many Michael, things I, now I that think people... I, I, I think the world assumes that she was a first lady by contract uh, during that presidency. That is absolutely correct. Uh, I also want to turn around and tell you there's a story that when Trump became the nominee, actually, I apologize, when Trump first declared that he was going to run uh, for the nomination, for the Republican nomination, I remember his sister called me, Judge Barry, and she goes, Michael, 
you get my brother to stop this bullshit and you stop it now. So I said, but judge, I said, you know, he's, he's never going to stop. And he's beginning to actually climb in the polls. And she, she flat out turns around and says to me, listen to me. My brother cannot be president. He is an idiot. I sat there and I was like, well, I'll let him know, you know, (laughs) and um, I did not go into his office and tell him that his own sister turned around and said that he should not be president because he's an idiot. But more importantly, I want to I want to bring something. And she's a she's a whip smart judge who I think did a lot of his homework along the way for him and knew he was, in fact, totally incompetent and a danger as the potential president of the United States. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what their relationship is today. I suspect it's been pretty well destroyed. Uh, but this is true. She is a she's a seasoned and knowledgeable judge who could critically look at even her own brother and say, this man is a danger if he's president. And uh, obviously she ha- she couldn't come. She was going to the channel she thought might be able to nip it in the bud. But obviously that was something you couldn't fix. No, once we got that train rolling, there was nothing that was going to stop it. <laughs> but I will tell you something interesting since we're talking about your book and authoritarians and so on. You know, Trump never equated the presidency to being a man representing his country for the benefit of the country. He always equated the president of any country to being a dictator. And I'm going to tell you a funny story. One time when I was working on this project in the country of Georgia, I was doing a project there. It was going to be, it was going to be called uh, the Trump uh, Hotel and Tower in Batumi, which is on their, um, the, the, uh, the Black Sea. And it was, it's there sort of like, Comparison to the Hamptons here in New York, that's where people who reside in Belize or people from Azerbaijan all go there or from Turkey because it's only like 10 kilometers from the border that they all came there. It's their beach town and so on. And there I had through the relationship with the developer, we became friendly with the president of the country, Mikhail Saakashvili. And Saakashvili He's a very bright guy. He's a lawyer. I think he was Columbia Law School. I mean, you couldn't even tell that he was Georgian. His English was that perfect. And I remember the first time that myself um, and Trump, we came to Georgia uh, and we spent a lot of time with Saakashvili, the three of us. He never referred to him as Mr. President. He always referred to him as Mr. Dictator. And I never really fully understood what was that all about, other than maybe Donald Trump trying to be playful, because as we would drive down in the presidential motorcade, the soldiers were all standing facing the opposite direction. They're back to the, you know, to the car um, in this straight long line, big Georgian military guys. And he would be like, wow. How does it feel to be a dictator? And throughout the entire night, we would then go to the different square where uh, they would have performances in honor of Mr. Trump coming and the possibility of this building that was going up. And every reference to Saakashvili was never Mr. President. It was always Mr. Dictator. And the more I think about that in retrospect, the more I truly understand Donald Trump's desire to be the dictator of the United States of America, to be the authoritarian, to be the autocrat. That's what he wanted out of the presidency, not to do anything good 
for this country, but rather to ensure that his brand would become nationally and internationally developed and that he would ultimately become the dictator. And that's how scary that this man is when you look inside his brain. Yeah, I have no, I have no doubt uh, that you're correct in that reading. That you, you saw it probably earlier than some of us. Uh, I saw it immediately with his surfacing uh, because I'd seen these types of people before. He was clearly a demagogue. The New York Times was reluctant to call him a demagogue initially, and within 90 days of his campaign, they've called in. All the past experts on American demagogues from McCarthy, Joe McCarthy, to George Wallace. They have a bunch of political scientists around. They analyze his campaign speeches, and they reach the conclusion this man is clearly a demagogue. So thereafter, they started calling him a demagogue. Not, 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 not pushing it, but obviously when it came up, they didn't dodge it. But, you know, Michael, what's, what's so evident about this man— after four years of him, everything he did was not never in the public interest. It was always in Donald Trump's interest uh, from the very get-go to the end. It's kind of sad, kind of pathetic uh, that people still believe in him, that they get something because he gets what he wants. And it doesn't work out that way. Uh, if he gets what he wants, our democracy is gone, and they'll get nothing in the long run. So uh, whether a sufficient number of them, particularly those who are buying into the big lie, and they know better. Uh, the people I talk to who uh, still tout it do it for sheer uh, reasons to annoy people on the left, some of them, and uh, they know it's a lie. But he he's glommed on to it, and it's become the overt Republican policy today is to advance voter suppression based on an absolutely bogus result from the election, the last election that he's pushed. Uh, so he he's out there having an influence, there's no question. And that surprises me that so many people can be conned. Hi, folks. Michael Cohen here. If you're like me, you spend most of your day online conducting business, talking to friends and loved ones, or searching out the latest information. Well, I'm here to tell you, be careful. Cybercriminals are taking advantage of the COVID-19 pandemic to scam people into stealing their money and personal information. They attempt to exploit people's hardship due to loss of job or reduced hours with phishing emails and fake websites that falsely inform recipients that they are entitled to financial support while stealing their information. Phishing emails are just one of the many ways cyber criminals can try to take what's yours. Simply click a bad link in an email and it could give them access to your passwords or personal information. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security blocks cyber criminals from stealing personal information on your devices. VPN with bank-grade encryption helps keep the information you send over Wi-Fi safe. And LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your information and alerts you to potential threats to your identity. Now, folks, no one could prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can opt into cyber safety. So sign up today and save 25% or more off your first year by going to Norton.com slash Cohen. That's 25% off Norton.com slash Cohen.
Yeah, well, it's you know, it's funny because we were talking about Stormy Daniels. <laughs> I brought up that that he probably brought her to mental orgasm. I bet if I had Stormy back on and I asked her that question, I think she would turn around and say, mental orgasm. The only thing he gave me was a migraine, right? <laughs> that, that's probably true. Now, I do want to say that there is a common thread between Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. And that, of course, is the disgraceful, the scumbag Roger Stone. Now, I'm curious if he ever surfaced in your dealings at the White House. Never. Uh, he was, he was, Roger was very young then. He was at GW and, 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 uh, as an undergraduate. He apparently did some work for the re-election campaign. I never met him. The first time I met him was at a book fair in Texas where he showed up uh, first in line to ask me a question. He asked a, a nasty question and then sat down. I said, Roger... Uh, I introduced him to the audience. I said, we're in Texas. This is a man who believes that Lyndon Johnson is responsible for JFK's death. Uh, I'd like him to come back to the microphone to take my answer. So I, he, he did. I shamed to get, get back up, uh, sawed him off at the knees and watched him kind of limp away. Uh, he's, he, he's all uh, bluff and, uh, and bravado and not much of a threatening person in, in reality. So, yes, he, 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 he gloms on to, uh, to figures. He, he actually was active in Nixon's post-presidency. I think he worked for Nixon when he was living in New Jersey as a post-president, uh, did some volunteer work for him. Uh, and as you know, he's got a tattoo of Nixon on his back, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm still hopeful Roger will make his way to a federal penitentiary where his, his uh, inmates can get to share his tattoo on his back. Yeah, I've actually seen that. It is a full portrait of Richard Nixon. I've never seen anything like it. It literally encompasses the entire dead center of his back. Um, it's qu it's quite large, and it's funny because Roger will always talk about his close relationship to Richard Nixon while he was president, and so on. And to hear this from you that there was none, it just goes to show you. The funny thing is also his relationship with Donald Trump is not what people believe it to be. Trump doesn't give a shit about Roger. He threw him off the campaign in 2012. He threw him off the campaign again in 2015 because Roger right basically brings nothing to the table. And as you said, a lot of bullshit and a lot of bravado. However, what Roger did do and what he did bring to Trump was the notion of WikiLeaks and his relationship with Julian Assange. Because I testified before Robert Mueller, as well as to Congress, that Roger called Trump and I was in the room and Trump put it on his little speakerphone, which he did for virtually every conversation, because that's all he did in the office was talk all day long. And to hold the phone next to your ear becomes really annoying. So he had a little box and he didn't care who was listening. And Roger called and Roger was very straightforward, saying in a couple of days, there's going to be a massive drop by WikiLeaks that's going to destroy the Hillary Clinton campaign and Trump right after we hung up the phone said to me you believe him I said I don't know I mean Roger's a fucking liar I mean there's nothing that comes out of Roger's mouth and he goes yeah he's you know he lies but you know Roger is the dirty trickster you know who knows who he plays with who he deals with but let's see what happens and then lo and behold you had the Podesta drop and then that's when Trump started allowing him back into the campaign fold Michael let me ask you a question 
if I might. Uh, did you have any personal dealings with Mueller while you were working with them? Uh, only we, his team. Mostly, only mostly his, his team. Yeah. You not ne- you never met him. I never met. I never met him. I've, I'm I'm curious as to what happened with Mueller. Why he sort of really never was very aggressive in his investigation of Trump. Uh, it, he he certainly went after uh, those around Trump to a degree. Uh, as you can attest, but you know the, he he could have made that case many ways, and the report is actually a pretty soft report. Uh, as we know, after the fact, there are thousands of prosecutors who say they would have prosecuted his obstruction of justice. There would have been no question, but Mueller decided to give him a pass, which only sort of emboldened uh, Donald Trump. So he di- he did beat it, uh, and I don't know that anybody now will pick up those conspicuous federal offenses. Many of them, and most of them, are far worse than any obstruction that Richard Nixon engaged in. Uh, but yet, uh, Trump's going to get away with them, right? But it's not just that obstruction of justice. Donald Trump obstructed justice. Time and time and time again. I mean, people don't realize when he's tweeting angry tweets at you. And at the time when he was allowed on Twitter, the guy had like 100 million followers. Now, not all of his followers are supporters, right? But even if 30, 40, 50 percent, that's 50 million people that are attacking you each and every day and doing so because they don't want you to testify. They don't want you to do what you're supposed to do when you receive a judicial subpoena. All of Trump's people turned around and they balked at the subpoenas and said, I'm not testifying. Since when do you have the right, if you get a judicial subpoena, to turn around to tell the, to tell the Congress, you know, ah, thank you very much for your subpoena, but I'm not interested. Okay, fine. Now it's, you know, now it's, it's, it's an ordered, right, a subpoena. Now, all of a sudden, you turn and say, yeah, I still decide I'm not going to. Trump says I don't have to. That's not obstruction of justice or attacking me and my family. It's not witness tampering. The same thing of Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and Matt Getz and the rest of these fucking animals. Serious? Okay. I and mean, people have no idea the kind of damage that somebody like Trump, who is just, you know, with 50, 80, 100 million followers, what they do to your life, how they turn it upside down, inside out, and you don't have anybody there standing beside you, trying to back you up. The only few people I had are people like, you know, Elijah Cummings, Eric Swalwell, Jerry Nadler, you know, in a sort of way, Nancy Pelosi, right? Um, you know, uh, Adam Schiff. These few individuals stood up and said, listen, you can't do stuff like that. You can't tweet angry stuff trying to create a mob in order to, you know, as I wrote in my book, Disloyal, I had to drive down to Florida, uh, down to D.C. in order to testify because I couldn't take a plane or I couldn't take a train down there. I couldn't be seen. And I was nervous. I was really nervous that one of these supporters, you know, were going to try to do something bad, like run me off the road. Michael, you're talking to somebody who spent 18 months in the witness protection program because the supporters of an authoritarian president uh, didn't want to have my testimony out there. Uh, it took it took a while to have that dissipate. When Nixon left, it was very very conspicuous that my my testimony was no fantasy. What do you think is going to happen with the Vance investigation? Now, my my reading was based on the fact you've been in there eight times. 
Uh, it's just you don't you don't go in and spend eight sessions with these guys who are very busy in a small overtaxed office if they don't have something of interest to pursue. Uh, so what's your reading and when is it going to happen? Well, I can't really comment on that for you the same reasons Michael, that we... But, right. Michael, you and I know you can comment. And right. You, you choose not to I, comment. I choose not to. Yeah. I really do have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, Cy Vance, Mark Pomerantz, and the whole team. And, you know, I'm going to let their investigation proceed. But I will tell you, uh, and the listeners who will hear it for the first time, I've been asked to come back again and again, and even again after that. So you could rest assured that they're not, they're not taking this task lightly at all. But I want to then jump into something. In an interview with Democracy Now!'s Amy Goodman, you were discussing Trump and the GOP's approach to politics at the 2020 convention, summing it up as the following, and in quotes, well, it's quite clear what they're doing is not new. If you go back to the reporting of Hunter Thompson, who described this kind of convention as fear and loathing, I think Hunter had his finger right on it. This is what we're seeing again. They're trying to stir up their support by, first of all, creating fear, creating uncertainty, and that this drives their authoritarian followers into their ranks, and a little loathing for those prejudiced people who are also so much a part of these followers. Now, if you can, unpack for my listeners this notion of fear and loathing and how it was first deployed by Nixon in 1968 as he made himself um, the law and order president, something we heard out of Trump, and the leader of the so-called silent majority, another thing that Trump copied. Also, curious, if it if ever met um, Hunter S. Thompson, he would have been in his prime when Watergate was heating up. Did you meet with him? I did, after, actually. Uh, I was a Rolling Stone writer at one point, too. So Hunter and I had a, a number of encounters. I, I can remember making the very dangerous move of leaving Bill Murray and Hunter Thompson in my house alone when I, my wife and I left and was delighted to see it hadn't been burned down by the time I got back <laughs> home. Uh, but anyway, what, what, I, what I mentioned... When I mentioned fear and loathing, it is and what Hunter was on to was not just Nixon. This is the this is the tactic of any authoritarian leader. He wants to create fear because it attracts his uh, his audience, his his followers. They they find comfort in the strong leader who will tell them, "Don't worry, he will fight the demons and uh, the uh, take on the enemy for them." The loathing part of it is, mar to me, much more insidious. Fright frightened people are understandable. Uh, they have a personality disposition that makes them less than bold in life. And so they can, you can see how having a daddy figure who takes care of them is something that they uh, find reassuring. But the loathing is a little different. The loathing is really prejudice. It is uh, dislike of the other. Uh, it is dislike of immigrants, blacks, people of color. And that's what Nixon tapped into in uh, his first campaign uh, in 58. And then again in 72, he did it uh, more effectively. Actually, when he first got elected in, in 69, he was 
he was using uh, really coded words like uh, uh, stop school busing and and uh, uh, just with slightly racial overtones that the those who are loathers could pick up, but the rest of people could interpret multiple ways. Trump was was a little bit more blatant when he comes out and calls uh, Mexicans racists and rapers. Uh, he's not being subtle at all. And this is appealing to the worst in in any human being. What I discovered in doing the book, Michael, and what was most stunning in doing the the uh, the mammoth poll that we uh, did a we had a, a base of about two hundred fifty thousand people from which we selected about a thousand, uh, skewing it somewhat towards Trump followers, uh, just so we could get a better reading of them, and it became apparent from that polling. Uh, as we report in the book, that Trump has assembled probably the most prejudiced group of Americans that have ever been assembled. That's their. That's the glue that holds these people together. They they uh, they fear and loathe the other, if you will. They are deeply prejudiced. The Republican Party is the authoritarian party, and this is a party built on prejudice. That's why this voter suppression. Their their supporters love it. Uh, anyone who sees what's going on realizes they're just trying to stop uh, blacks and people of color from voting because of their fear and their prejudice. Yeah, well it's it's. I mean, that is just Donald Trump. You summed it up. I mean, because honest, from what you're describing as your poll, you know, this whole notion of fear and loathing. This is the exact precursor to today's GOP. And their constant sense of victimhood, their obsession with cancel culture, and um, and their adoption of white identity politics as an identity. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was sitting with Trump when a comment would come out of his mouth. And at that point in time, as you said earlier, no one thought he was going to win, let alone win the Republican nomination. Forget about the entire election, the general election. Nobody thought it, not he. Not his sister, not any of us. This was supposed to be the greatest infomercial in the history of American politics. And what he ended up tapping into is exactly what you're identifying in this fear and loathing. He figured out how to tap into the worst part of humanity, into each and every person that was out there. And whether it was his attacks on Colin Kaepernick, right, for, for kneeling in order to, to show solidarity he was never happier than when he found out that NFL football's ratings were down 35% because everything with Donald Trump is about ratings, right? I mean, he would wait for that Tuesday after The Apprentice, you know, to have the assholes at NBC turning around and calling him to tell him how great he is, pump up the ego, sending him things so we could send it out to everybody. I would get called in from the middle of a meeting to turn around to his office, and he would give me a piece of paper showing that The Apprentice was the number one reality television show, um, you know, for the night. And send it out to all your contacts. Send it out to everybody. Let everybody know The Apprentice is number one. Number one. Meanwhile, we're in the middle of a gigantic meeting. At that time, I think it was something to do with Trump University and so on. But he was still more he was still more interested in his ratings than he was whatever we were working on. Maybe it was when the kids were up in front of Cy Vance for their um, Trump Soho issue, you know, lying to the general public. But that's just who Donald Trump is. He 
despises anyone that's not him. So it's not a matter of whether you're black or white. He thinks everyone is inferior to him, which I think is truly an amazing, you know, narcissistic sociopathic disorder is really the only way that I describe him in my book, Disloyal, and um, on this podcast as well. But I do want to say, John, as we're winding down the hour, I have just um, one or two more things that I want to ask you. Because one of the great aberrations of this era is the cult of Donald Trump and his MAGA followers, something we've been talking about for the past hour now. And despite everything that is known about this man, and I constantly say he's a racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semite, his own word and deeds, he still commands this massive support from the grassroots of his own party. What'd you say? 74, 75 million. How long do you think it will take to break his spell upon the faithful? And will it ever end? Or does he and his family have to go to prison in order to make, you know, in order to make this thing just go away? Will it, will this even matter? Well, going to prison would certainly help. He certainly earned it. <laughs> and, Amen. and, uh, and no one uh, should be surprised if it happens. I think that one of the problems with the authoritarian follower is they will follow somebody like this to his grave. Uh, there is no short, quick fix for uh, this type of personality. They don't find satisfaction uh, necessarily in a substitute. Sometimes they can, sometimes they won't. But they have glommed on to this man and his, uh, his grifting uh, as if it's, it's a pure process of rationalization and denial Concept, you know, they 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 can do this. I explain. We explain this in some detail because psychology has studied this and knows what this phenomena is. And when I was first diving into this, and throughout working on this book with my collaborator, who's the expert in this field, I kept saying, "Bob, I said, isn't there any way to rationalize and deal with these people where they get it and understand what's happening to them and what they're doing?" And he said, short answer, no. You, you've got to just outvote them and put them back under rocks where they realize this is not the way of a democracy. And short of that, there is no easy answer. He said a few of them around the edges will take stock when they realize what they're doing and will try to alter their behavior. But the overwhelming majority will not. So there is only one way to deal with them, and that is to outvote them. That's why the voter suppression legislation that is now about the country is very dangerous, Michael. Uh, if the Republicans can get away with it, and there's no federal antidote to to deal with this at the state level, given the fact that the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act, uh, which was one of my first pieces of legislation to work on when I was counsel at the House Judiciary Committee. So it's, it's, it's a travesty to see that uh, having been gutted. Uh, but anyway, we, there, is, there is a remedy uh, if, uh, if we can outvote them and prevent them from distorting the process. If they get away with distorting the process, we're in trouble. Uh, it's just that simple. Yeah, and one of my biggest fears, something I talk about quite a bit on this program, as well as on television and to the press, is what's going to happen when somebody who's a lot smarter than Trump, and that's virtually anybody, with more money than Trump, and there's quite a few of them out there now, who's more devious and more sinister than Donald Trump. 
which is not as many, but they are out there. What happens when these individuals decide that they want to then take over the GOP, that they want to try to become Donald Trump 2.0, a much better, much smarter, much more devious um, you know, president than Donald Trump turned out to be? What happens then? And how do we stop that from ever happening? Well, there, there is no easy answer. That's why there's a paperback edition of my book coming out to address just that, because the followers are the problems. Without the followers, uh, Trump would be nothing. Uh, and to not understand these people and, or how to deal with them uh, is uh, troublesome. So, yes, somebody could do that. I got to say this about Trump, that most authoritarians take a Donald Trump, take a, excuse me, take a, a Ted Cruz, take a Josh Hawley. Uh, they're every bit the authoritarian of Trump. They don't have quite the charisma that Trump does. He's got, as the New York Times noted very early, uh, he actually is sort of a put on. And there's, you know, there's an element about his personality and his ability to, to pull this stuff off that uh, is a little different than most of the demagogues we've had. And that's one of the reasons he's been successful. So while there are authoritarians out there, and I mentioned two uh, who are already wanting to be Trump 2.0, uh, they may not make it. Uh, Trump, you know, I, the question I have is how long Trump can last. He is the picture of bad health. He is some man who, as somebody who believes that exercise is something that's limited. If you use too much of it, uh, you you won't be able to uh, continue. That there's there's only so much exercise the body can do. He certainly is a a uh, a walking example of poor health. John, so how no did you hear? Knows. How did you hear about that? Because that is actually true. People don't realize how crazy that notion is. Donald Trump referred to it as life energy. Now, I don't yes. know if he pulled this off of a, ton, a Tony Robbins bullshit line or something, because Tony Robbins <laughs> is in good shape. But he used to call it life energy, that every human body born has a certain amount of life energy, and that by running the marathon exerts X amount of that life energy from your body, which is why these people die earlier. And what he would do is he would look at the newspaper, and if he would see a marathon or at the age of 60 dying, right? Forget about the fact that the guy was hit by a train, right? The fact that the guy died proves his theory on life energy. I mean, not only is it ridiculous, it's stupid. It, it, of course, the facts are just the opposite. Uh, you, you actually can get longevity by exercising, and that is one of the few ways to deal with it. Uh, I'm, I am blessed with good health. I also go to the gym every day. So uh, uh, anyway, I read it somewhere in my vast, I read about everything you can read on Trump. And I must say that I think that other than our own summary, which is looking at trying to understand why, how he gained the personality he has now demonstrated so publicly, Mary Trump does a good job. She's a trained clinical psychologist and uh, she came to the, she was actually, we had written our book before Mary came out with hers and ours came out just before hers did. But I got, we got re, got a lot of affirmation from it. Uh, and the bottom line being that probably the greatest negative influence on Donald Trump was Fred Trump, his father, uh, who must have been a real piece of work. Did you ever know Fred Trump? I, I did not, but um, I've heard plenty of stories uh, over the years from different people and it's exactly why Donald Trump is a lousy father to Don, 
to Ivanka, to Eric, to Tiffany, to Baron. It's because they both lacked empathy for anyone or anything other than themselves. And it's really why Don and Eric and Ivanka, right? And she married someone just like her father with Jared, where it's all about them. And these three children are so starving for emotional attention, for love from their father. And it's the same way that Fred dealt with Donald. I mean, they shipped them all off to boarding school because he didn't want to be bothered by an ADD child like, you know, like Donald, who, you know, just was a, you know, was not what he was expecting, right? You end up with, you know, that's, that's what he ended up with. So John, let me thank you for your time, for your insight. Uh, Definitely love to have you back on the show. We have so many things to talk about. By the way, you do know that my middle name is Dean, right? I did. <laughs> yep. So there you go. We have even one more it's, thing in common. John, thank you so much for your time. I really, it's an honor to meet you and to speak to you. Pleasure, Michael. Stay safe. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with John Dean, I am heartened to see a man unburdened by his own past. He seems long ago to have forgiven himself and made amends for his own transgressions. Dean proves that we don't have to be defined by who we once were. I am no more the person who stood beside Donald Trump 11 years ago than John Dean is an Exonian henchman. He shows me what the future will hold if I only stay the course. And through a weird quirk of history, our lives seem connected on some larger cosmic plane. We both bore witness to moments of tremendous national upheaval as close to the levers of power as one could get. And in doing so, we're blinded by ambition, allowing ourselves to get sucked into morally questionable actions for which we were duly judged. S. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote that there are no second acts in American lives. Yet, for John Dean, his second act is bigger and richer than the one that ultimately brought him down. As the decades waned and Dean continued to write books, he transformed himself in the public's mind from notorious to highly esteemed. He became part of the permanent historical record. And that is the true irony. How two fundamentally decent men could be connected through space and time and history in such a way. Only time will tell what the next chapter brings for Donald Trump. But I can guarantee that my own second act has only just begun. And thanks for listening. Maya Culper is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up in association with Midas Touch and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustad, and it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. 